This is Gray Area. I'm Daniel Alarcón. Here are the facts. The U.S. population is getting older, fast, and we're not really prepared. So our team wanted to take a look at this from lots of different angles. In this episode, we talk about dementia, a disease that affects over 5 million Americans. Most of us know someone, a friend, a parent, a grandparent, who is living with Alzheimer's or another kind of dementia. And that's how this story started for our producer, Sarah Wyman, with her grandfather and his relationship to music. Can the arts change the trajectory of an incurable disease? Here's Sarah. Every year growing up, my grandpa would play trumpet for me on my birthday. He and my grandma were in Sweden. I was in California. And they were nine hours ahead of me, so the call would usually be the thing I woke up to, the first thing I heard as I turned another year older. It's funny, I've never seen them make the call but I can totally imagine them doing it, both of them standing together in their weird green-carpeted basement, my grandma holding the home phone on speaker in her outstretched hand, a safe distance away from the bell of his trumpet, and him in one of his soft flannel shirts that was too big for his body, standing up straight, making a sound that, even through the thin foam line, felt clear and powerful, like it was coming from a much younger pair of lungs. My grandpa was never much of a talker. He was very Swedish, pretty private, not a good partner for small talk. We didn't have a lot of deep conversations, but I do feel like I knew who he was, and like he knew me too. I think that's because of his trumpet. He played for most of his life, well over 80 years, and it was basically a given that he'd play at every important family function we went to. Reunions, christenings, funerals. I didn't see him that often growing up, since we were on two different continents, but we talked on the phone sometimes. My grandma would pass the receiver over to him when he wandered into the room, and he'd ask me just one question before passing it back. How's the cello going? What are you working on? That's the version of him I'm holding on to. The quiet, mild-mannered guy who didn't waste words on things he didn't care about. Who looked small and whose bones you could feel when you hugged him and who loved spending time in the garden, eating cinnamon rolls and playing music. That's Mordefad, my grandpa. But there's something you need to know. My grandpa had dementia, and when he died, he wasn't that guy anymore. When we first heard, it seemed like nothing much had changed. Sure, he lost things that were important, like his bank book and his email password, And sometimes you had to have the same conversation with him, two or three or four times before it stuck. But then again, I'm like that on my bad days, too. But when it got worse, and it got a lot worse, we didn't know how to adapt. How to move in between my grandpa's fuzzy world and the world we lived in. A place where things like knowing what year it was and remembering to take out the trash on Wednesdays felt like they mattered. And when he stopped being himself when he slept through afternoon coffee and didn't want to practice his trumpet, we didn't know how to help him. During the last couple months of his life, my grandpa was pretty unstable. We know now that his behavior had a lot to do with the medication he was taking. It was causing some pretty serious side effects. But at the time, it just felt like he was having a really hard time adjusting to the changes in his life. Like he could feel his brain and his clarity slipping away from him, and he was frustrated and terrified. And he was taking that out on the people around him. 
When he was eventually moved out of his home and into a care facility, we tried to make the transition as smooth as possible. He wasn't lucid most of the time, but when he asked questions about where he was or what was happening, we tried hard not to upset him. I remember feeling really afraid, on his behalf, I think, of what would happen if we let him feel sad or angry, if we let him feel anything. His trumpet came with him to the care facility. My mom says the last time he played it was probably the Christmas before he died. The staff thought it could be fun for him to perform for everyone. But he hadn't played for months, and he was rusty. The notes were coming out off key. The tone was garbled and weak. He didn't sound the way he'd always sounded, and that was really hard for him. One of his doctors suggested to our family that maybe it was too soon for the trumpet. It was too triggering for him, too emotional. So we took it away. And maybe that calmed him down. Maybe that made him easier to take care of. But I think it also made him less ours. Dementia might have taken his trumpet away from him eventually, but we took it away first. And I'm still worried we took part of him with it. I don't like talking about the end of my grandpa's life. It felt wrong while it was happening, like the way he was dying didn't at all match the way he lived. It's hard for me to reconcile who he became with who he was, or to know whether, in the end, he was really there at all. My mom has this voicemail saved on her phone of her dad playing her happy birthday. It's from 2012. You can hear my grandma singing along. Towards the end, the fanfare turns sour. He can't quite hit the high notes anymore. My grandma blames it on the early morning. I don't remember the last time I heard my grandpa play trumpet, but I know he didn't call on my 22nd birthday. And I know why. It's been a year since my grandpa died. I live in New York City now. And I want to know how we could have helped him at the end of his life. If I could have done a better job of holding on to him, of connecting with the parts of him that were still there. I wanted to find a better way. So that's what I went looking for. On the corner of 4th Ave and 14th Street in Park Slope, there's a brick building nestled away from the street. When you walk through the front door, you'll hear the New York Memory Center before you see it. It's bursting with music, laughter, and a special kind of whimsy. Everybody's talking, everybody's eating, everybody's having fun. We're creating a poem, and it's silly, and it's cute. That's Josephine Brown. She's the executive director at the New York Memory Center, an all-day care program for people with dementia. And tonight, she's having a party. 
Brown walks me through the center, past an impressive spread of holiday treats. You know, it's always, everything centers around food. You can't tell I'm Italian, right? And into a small auditorium that is exploding with sound. A gray-haired woman with blue plastic baubles tied onto the ends of her pigtails is shuffling across the dance floor, her head down and her arms pumping back and forth to the beat. To her right, a couple in matching reindeer sweaters is singing along to the accordion at full volume. There aren't any words to the song the band is playing, but that doesn't feel important. The room is packed. And you're looking at the participants, and it's the caregivers, and it's their loved ones with Alzheimer's. People just get up and start singing and singing a totally different song than, you know, and everybody joins in because it's their moment, it's their song. And they're laughing and having a good time together and people who have the disease are just as functional in that moment and come up with the craziest stuff. For example, a man in his late 80s, the guy wearing the reindeer sweater, is on his feet, singing Barry Manilow's Copacabana. And everyone in the room is totally supportive of that. The band follows his lead, a woman across the room starts singing backup, and now we're all singing Copacabana at a Christmas party. And somehow, it works. You know what? Why, why interrupt greatness? Just go with the flow. People have to be who they are. And if that's who you are at that minute, that's who you are. The mastermind behind all of this is a guy named Gary Glazner. I feel good. I feel good. So good. So good. You knew that I would. Glazner is a poet, but not like the moody-looking, beret-wearing Shakespearean actors that come up when you Google image search it. He's like a cross between Drew Carey and Santa Claus. Jolly, silly, a little bit magical. And in his poetry, everything's made up, and the points don't matter. Because it's not a natural thing to think like, oh, someone has Alzheimer's, you should do poetry with them, right? You don't leap to that. But when you think of it as a performance and an improv, then it becomes closer to thinking like, oh yeah, you really, that really does match being in the moment. Living in the moment, or in a string of moments, is sort of the definition of having dementia. Over time, as your memory falls away, parts of you fall away with it. Big parts, like where you're from, who your family is, and who you are. But it takes away little things, too like memories of what you did yesterday, or this morning, or 10 minutes ago. And as that erosion happens, it leaves you on an island of a moment. All you have is what is happening around you right now, and there's no telling how long you'll hold on to it before a new moment, with different edges, hems you in. I carry your heart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Glazner's goal is to make these moments, the islands we're sharing, as pleasant as possible. And he does that using poetry and by playing to his audience's strengths. The weakness would be the typical way we think of memory, which is autobiographical. Remember the time we went to the lake. That can be very hard for people with memory loss. But if you're just saying, say these words back to me, people can be successful. This is the wonder. This is the wonder. It keeps the stars apart. Keeps the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry your this exercise uses what's called echoic memory, 
It's an audio imprint that only sticks around in your brain for four to eight seconds. And it's the kind of memory we use, for instance, if I were to, to say my phone number and you were to hold it in your mind long enough to dial it or write it down. But echoic memory isn't just for numbers. Listen to it with a line of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm going to say a line of the poetry, and you at home, the listener now, your challenge is to step into the room with us and say the poem back. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, while I nodded nearly napping. When Glazner breaks poems down into lines, he's turning them into little packages that are perfectly sized for echoic memory to hold on to. And that's ideal for people with dementia, because echoic memory isn't affected by the disease. And so then you see that people become more social, they become more engaged, um, maybe they're more lucid about answering the questions, or maybe they're starting to sing more. And all of that's just amazing to watch, you know, and to participate in and to be part of. And it's really, really fun. James Noble, a neurologist at Columbia University Medical Center, whether programs like Glazner's work. It's a great question. I'm not so sure we know the full answer for it yet. But he's looking for it. Noble is the co-founder of Arts and Minds, a nonprofit designed for people with dementia and their caregivers. We'll meet his co-founder and executive director, Carolyn Halpin-Healy, in a minute. But first, here's why it's hard to assess whether art actually helps people with dementia. There isn't a cure. So making a person better from the disease isn't really possible. And then measuring the impact of art on a person, that's not what science is built for. It's, it's a bit like trying to put an abstract concept around another abstract concept, you know, dancing about architecture or something like this. It just, it's very hard to imagine how to do it. But Noble has a hunch. He's seen Arts and Minds and other programs like it in action. He spent time with participants, felt how it's affected them. And as a doctor who cares about his patients, that's stuck with him. You know, I take care of patients with Alzheimer's disease. I see the degree of really suffering that they go through and how upset their family members are. And something that I could do even to, you know, enlighten maybe in an hour and a half of their day once or twice a month, that seems to be worthwhile to me. Here's how it works. Once every couple of weeks, local museums open their doors to groups of Arts and Minds participants, New Yorkers with dementia and their caregivers. They spend about half an hour in a gallery, examining and talking about a work of art together, and then they head to a studio space where they're given their own canvas. The hope is that it'll be fun, that it will give participants a break from the world of dementia. But when it really works, it goes one step further. Participants have the opportunity to communicate in a different language, a visual language, and that's often liberating. When you're painting or drawing or making art of any kind, putting things in the right order doesn't matter. There isn't a right order. Clarity and coherence don't carry the same weight. And so if you can't find the words you need, or if you can't string them together to make the meaning you're trying to make, that's not a problem. Someone can still observe your art and come closer to feeling what you're feeling, to seeing what you're seeing.
actually. That, that might nice work. nice on the wall, actually. Does it? Yeah. Would I you like hold it, it for me? Yes, yes. So I can see it? Inside the chapel at Union Theological Seminary in Upper Manhattan, four art curators are pacing back and forth in front of a small alcove. In just one week, they're opening an exhibition featuring the work of Arts and Minds participants. And today, they're making some important decisions. Everything from how the art is framed to where it hangs in the gallery, it all matters. And it's Carolyn Halpin Healy's job to make those calls. I think our cultural narrative of Alzheimer's is a narrowing, darkening one. To realize that, in fact, there are possibilities for learning and growth. It's not what people expect. And so it turns out to be a very uh, kind of joyful surprise that shows them that there's potential. Here's a different kind of breakup. She's shuffling framed works of art around in an alcove. Every once in a while, she'll step back, shift her weight onto her right leg, and stand quietly for a minute, resting her chin on the tips of her knuckles. Okay, okay, Troy. Great, ready to hang? <laughs> Halpin Healy and her team have been working on bringing this exhibition to the chapel for months, selecting art, reviewing color relationships, and thinking about framing. They take this job seriously because they see the art as more than just pictures on a wall. They're deciding how to represent people's voices and making sure they're heard as clearly as possible. So another, another way to discover, to, to say what we have to say to one another. The collection spans years of artistic work from Arts and Minds participants. Nelly Escalante is the program coordinator. All of the work is post-diagnosis. The majority, I would say, was made in Arts and Minds. As she walks me around the room, she points out works of art and artists she feels particularly attached to. Like this crayon drawing on an orange background of a man's profile. He looks fired up, like he's on a mission. Above his head, scrawled in all caps with letters of varying sizes, is a message. Get out my way. Mitch includes a lot of text in his work. For him, he says that it's a way for him to kind of keep talking. So it's, I don't know, I just thought it was just so poetic. Mitch McGuire has dementia, and he's not the only one. About half the artwork on display was made by people with dementia, some in the earliest stages of the disease and some with severe symptoms. The other half was made by their caregivers, mostly when they worked with their loved ones at Arts and Minds programs. As you walk around the room, it's hard to tell who made what, who has dementia, and who doesn't. These two are really... Isn't that wild? The two artworks Halpin Healy is holding now look very similar. Colorful, angular shapes arranged on horizontal bands of Velcro, almost like misshapen notes on a music staff. The one on the left was made by a severely disabled patient and their caregiver. And the one on the right... Um, and this is made by Dr. Noble, the neurologist. <laughs> This exhibition isn't really about dementia. It's about art and what we can learn from it. A week later, Nelly Escalante and I are standing in the lobby at Union Seminary. 
It's the opening night of the exhibition, and guests have been slow to trickle in. Through two sets of doors, you can hear the sheets of cold February rain pound the pavement. The glass windows shake a little as the wind whips past. But inside, it's warm. As a family piles into the lobby, their coats dripping onto the tile floor, you can almost hear them relax, breathe in the warm air and unwind, like they're coming home after a long day. Escalante gestures with her hands to show families how to get to the gallery. A series of three rights, up a set of stairs, a left, and you're there. The chapel is a long, echoey room lined with bright stone pillars that stretch 30 feet up to the ceiling. Families mill about along the walls, pausing in between pillars to take in the art tucked into the alcoves. A small group is gathered in front of a painting on the left side of the gallery. Every inch of it is covered in dots of bold color. Greens, reds, whites. Beverly Brody is the artist. She's here with her daughter, her husband, and her professional caregiver, Elena, who attends Arts and Minds with her. The description hanging under Brody's painting reads, I love reds and oranges. But she says the white paint is what really jumps out at her. It has the outward looking. It could be flowers, or it could be buds, uh, and it, uh, trying to think of what they're called. Her daughter, Robin, tries to fill in the blank. Stars? No. Snowflakes? No. It's, you find them in the bushes near water. Bushes near water. Water lilies, maybe? Yeah, that's what they look like, water lilies. Brody has Parkinson's disease dementia, and she has a hard time communicating with words, explaining how she feels. Painting has helped with that. Sometimes when she doesn't have her words, I think she expresses herself on the paper. The program's main means motion. That helps me get... Brody struggles to get the word out. Emotion. Motion. Emotion. But sometimes we're not so good at doing that on our own. Right. When I ask her about her art, Brody says she's not an artist. But her track record suggests otherwise. Her husband Harvey tells me her paintings hang all over their house, that they show them off to guests when they visit. Their front hallway is full of her colors, bright reds, oranges, blues, greens, and white. I'm not too uh, well versed in the color schemes, but but she knew what she was doing. Definitely. I'm very proud. Very proud of her. On the other side of the chapel, Samantha Schott is admiring a different work of art. Um, it's pretty spectacular. You just saved me from like starting to cry a little bit. Yeah. Schott is the Access and Education Programs Coordinator at El Museo del Barrio, and she spent time with many of the artists whose work is on display. It's really moving to see days when they, were they very clearly were expressing something. But the piece Schott is looking at now, an untitled sketch in pencil, pastel, and gel, was made by an artist she doesn't know. It's an abstract drawing. If you looked at it four different ways, you'd see something new every time. Schott and Carolyn Halpin-Healy, who you heard from earlier, described it to me. It's a very, very delicate 
really lovely drawing. Almost like you're, you're getting the chance to peer into like a world. Maybe I kind of hints at the silhouette of a building perhaps. But not and a sky that's kind of there or like a moon hanging down. And it all kind of hovers towards the top. Like if someone ripped a page and you looked through it and you got to see into someone else's kind of fantastic, like magical world. I have no idea what I was thinking about when I done that. That's Landon Wickham, the artist. This would look like out Midwest where you have the mountain that has a round top. This here could represent a bird with a long neck. And this is the world, okay? He doesn't see the same things every time he looks at his work, but he says that doesn't matter. And if other people see different things, that's okay too. That's what you see. So why would I question what you see? It's there, and it's beautiful. Wickham has at least five pieces on display in the exhibition. His works are colorful and bold. Often they depict scenes from nature, a bright tree with long yellow branches, sharply silhouetted birds in black, graphic bright orange and yellow leaves on a dark background. But when I call him an artist, Wickham laughs it off in his deep, warbling voice. Everything I have done in arts and mind, I had loved it, I took it home, I said, did I do that? I was telling them at the first class, if I took a straight ruler on a piece of paper and draw a straight line, I can't do that. But Wickham sees beauty in his life. For him, his wife Celia, who passed away suddenly last November, she was the artist. His kids, he says, are works of art. Whereas Wickham, all he does is paint what he sees around him the squirrels in his backyard, and the sunrise from his bedroom window. And maybe he doesn't see those things every time he looks at his work. Other people might not recognize them either. But I think they can feel what he's feeling, understand where he's coming from. That sounds like the work of an artist to me. Do you think this is a white camera for There's a hubbub near the back of the gallery, where Erwin Becker is trying to squeeze 10 of his closest family and friends into a photo. You're the guy, you're the guy there. I'm not the wife, she's the wife. He wants everyone to fit in front of the wall where his art is hanging. I hate to say this, but the shorter people can get in the front. Come on now. Becker's been participating in Arts and Minds since 2015, but he won't call himself an artist either. The first time he painted something at home, he tells me he ruined a brand new pair of pants. My wife almost threw me out of the window, so I decided, forget it. So he moved on to collage. All you have to do is get an idea. You take anything. Take garbage off the street, right? And, and everything just gets slapped on. You know, then the person has to actually look at it. That's the point of making it, really. His pieces are fun to look at. The one he's showing me now is called Kids Playing. But the pictures in the collage, they aren't of kids. These were all rats and it scared the wits out of me. If, a, if any kids were walking about, I think they'd start crying. It really, the thing is so <laughs> real. The rats in the pictures are those giant, really grotesque-looking inflatables that pop up when companies use non-union workers during strikes. When Becker ran into a couple on 75th Street, they really freaked him out. So what I did was I twisted everything around, all right? 
And so they actually look like real, you know, kids. Simple. It's not simple. Becker's work is precise and geometric. He clearly has an eye for photography and an instinct for creating movement out of stills. And the concept behind his work is complex too. He took something he was afraid of and literally shrunk it down to size, manipulated it, transformed it, took away its power and turned it into something beautiful, children playing. There's a lot to analyze in this work. You could spend hours looking at it, picking it apart. But if Becker sees it that way, he doesn't let on. He finds joy elsewhere. What makes me happy is I now know something's going to be created, and it's going to surprise me. Because if it doesn't surprise me, I'm going to throw it away. <laughs> Becker's in it for the moment of discovery and for the freedom that comes with the process. You can close your eyes, and then you back up, and you look up, and say, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. See? It, to me, you can't make a mistake. Most weeks, Arts and Minds takes dementia patients and their caregivers to museums around New York. But in late February, a week after the exhibition opening, the museum they're visiting is their own. The exhibit they themselves made at the Union Theological Seminary Chapel. Participants gather in half circles around the work hanging on the walls. They contemplate it. They talk about what they see, how it makes them feel. And then they get to hear from the artists. The artists get to stand in front of their work, owning it. They tell their peers about how they made it and what it means to them. It's through this conversation that people who hadn't previously identified as artists um, might be willing to say, well, I'm an amateur artist now, or I have an artistic point of view. They've discovered something about themselves, and the, the process has helped to surface that. And then, once they've taken a look around the gallery, they meet again in the middle of the chapel, around long wooden tables full of art supplies, and they paint. Putting what they put on paper together with how they experience the world. There's whimsy and color and hope in everything they're making and in everything hanging on the walls around them. back at the New York Memory Center, and the poets, they're talking to you. It's so nice to have you listening to us here. I told them I was making a podcast about them and asked what they wanted you to know. They said love is the biggest thing, the most important thing they've got. year since my grandpa died. Two of my birthdays have come and gone without a fanfare. And I'm still holding on to the question that led me to report this story. Was my grandpa, the trumpet player, still somewhere inside him before he died? 
And if he was, what could I have done to help him? I think when I started working on this project, I was hoping someone would tell me that music can fix people with dementia, at least for a little while, that it can bring them back to you for a minute, snap them out of their fog, and remind them of who they are. And some people think music can do that. Lots of the families and researchers I spoke with talked about these aha moments, where it felt like their loved ones regained clarity for a minute, were almost like normal. But what I really needed to hear, long before I knew I needed to hear it, was that dementia is irreversible. As of right now, at least, if you're diagnosed with dementia, you're not going to get better. The whole definition of better changes for you and for everyone around you. Better won't include lots of the things you used to be able to do. It won't include most of your memories. Sometimes it leaves out the people you love. But better can sound like the Memory Arts Cafe at the New York Memory Center, like a group of voices singing the same song in three different octaves, or the solo shuffling of worn shoes on an empty dance floor, or verses of poetry that don't always happen in the right order, or in any order, but somehow still makes sense. And better can look like the art hanging in the chapel at the Arts and Minds exhibition. Bold, colorful, whimsical, and wonderful. It can look like the artists who participate in the program, who aren't always seeing or hearing the same things, who can't always speak in ways everyone can understand, but who know each other deeply and feel close to one another. I wish my grandpa had programs like these. I wish we'd known to look for them. But more than that, I just wish I'd known what I know now. That if I'd shifted my perspective a little, we could have shared more moments together. That dementia changes how you experience the world around you, but it doesn't have to remove you from it. I want to be clear. By the time he died, I don't think my grandpa's trumpet could have saved him. I don't want to romanticize his death. It was painful for him in ways that music and art can't fix. He was really sick, and no amount of hope or optimism could change that. But there are things my family could have done differently, better. We could have encouraged my grandpa to express himself, let him feel his emotions and work through them instead of repressing them. And we could have helped him do that. I wish we'd let him have his trumpet, and I wish I would have played music with him. I know my grandpa's gone now, and I know his death was complicated. There were no easy choices, no clear answers at the time, and it's too late now to do anything to make the end of his life better. But his music, who he was, that never disappeared. It's been here this whole time, in my head, on my mom's voicemail, on old VHS tapes. And it's not too late for us to play together, for me to hear him clearly in a language we can both understand. So here we are. My grandpa is in 2012, at my cousin's christening in Utvidabari, Sweden. I'm in 2018, in a studio at WNYC. But for the first time since he was diagnosed with dementia, 
it feels like we're both in the same place, together, hearing the same thing. Sarah Wyman is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. Sarah, why were you interested in reporting on aging? I was lucky enough to get to know all four of my grandparents, but I also watched them and my parents grapple with the challenges that come along with aging. In doing this project, I was hoping to shed a light on that experience and tell some of the stories that I think are hard to tell and often overlooked. Gray Areas produced the Columbia Journalism School and edited by me. The rest of the staff includes Steph Beckett, Amara Amokwe, and Jennifer Siegel. Special thanks to Gigi Chiaffi and Jack Spinola and Peggy and Carlos Hernandez for sharing their stories. Also to Mary Middleman, Evelyn Grenieri, and Francesca Rosenberg for their expertise. Thanks to my colleagues at Columbia, Paula Spann and Dory Block. Caring Kind provided a number of resources that were useful in making this project. If you or a loved one are adapting to a dementia diagnosis, you can visit their website, caringkindnyc.org. They have a running list of arts programs in New York City that dementia patients and their families can attend. To find out more about our project and listen to more episodes, visit us on the web at grayareapodcast.nyc. We also list our music credits there. Follow us on Twitter at Gray Area NY. I'm Daniel Alarcón. Thanks for listening.